What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robert William Wagner, and my co-host, Chuck Carpenter. Whoa. Or, as you may know him, yes. Charles William Carpenter the Third. As no one else calls me other than yourself and the bank. So, our guest is appropriate. Yeah. The bank includes the third, even? Yeah, all official documents. It's better to include mm. more than less. They differentiate between, well, the other two, for starters. Mm, fair. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I have things I could say about that, but we won't go down that. Our guest today is Mark Stedman. How's it going, Mark? Good. How are you all? Doing well. Superb. <laughs> Fantastic. This is, I guess, I messed up the intro. I was probably supposed to start with, this is A11Y hour, but... We're getting used to it. Whatever. Hey. This is an accessibility episode. Yeah. Mark does accessibility stuff. Mark, do you want to tell people more about what you do, who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So again, just reiterating, Mark Stebman. I'm a principal accessibility engineer at Fidelity Investments. I've been in the accessibility field for close to about like eight years just now, which if you ask any of the other folks that are in the accessibility field, I'm a youngin in the accessibility field, which is totally fine. I will wear that badge of honor with that. But I work specifically in my role um, to help build up an accessibility program within Fidelity Investments. I'm currently focusing on mobile, actually a little bit of a career change for me on that, which is super dope. But in my past, I focused more um, specifically on JavaScript framework accessibility, automated solutions for accessibility, and then also developer specific accessibility. So my biggest passion is I feel like there's a gap in the field right now where developers are kind of not being reached out to from an accessibility side of things. And so my passion, both in my job and actually on the side too, because I like to write for accessibility as well, is to kind of fill that gap, right? Where I'm a dev, I was a dev, I was that dev who <laughs> wrote code and threw stuff out there in production, went home to my wife and said, look, I made that. And not knowing the impact of what I made, right? And so my goal is to kind of reach out to developers in a different sense, right? And tell them, hey, I've been in your shoes. I've been that person who made content that was inaccessible, right? So I do it through a bunch of different avenues, writing on the side, my current job, advocating for automation, making sure that JavaScript framework accessibility is out there and known. So I do it a little bit differently than other folks in the accessibility field because it's, it's ever-changing, right? Development, especially in the website, is something that literally changes probably as we're talking right now. Something probably changes. So, yeah, it's just a quick introduction for me. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a lot more into that later. But as always, <laughs> Chuck gets really cranky if we don't do the whiskey first. So we'll get into that. Well, I mean, it's 2 o'clock here where I'm at. And, you know, that's... <laughs> Drink o'clock. Been waiting all day. I've been waiting since this morning. <laughs> I've been waiting since breakfast. I had, you know, I had one then. Absolutely. All right. So today we're having, yeah, we're having the Angels Envy, which is a port finished, port wine finished Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. It is eighty six point six proof, smash bill of seventy two percent corn. That's a lot. 18% rye, 10% malted barley, and aged for approximately six years, blended in small batches of 8 to 12 barrels. My guess is that's probably some of it has to do with, because uh, they, they probably don't finish it for more than six months, give or take. Yeah, the finishing, I think, had said six months, um, and it's finished in the port wine barrels, which are made of French oak, apparently. Yes. And this one was a gift from my in-laws, so thanks, Kevin and Jen. <laughs> If you listen to this ever, <laughs> just figured I should mention that. I saw this in the notes where it said gift from my in-laws and I didn't know if that was Mark. 
Like Mark was like, I've got this. I've been waiting to open it. <laughs> no, 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 no. The only thing I do differently than everybody else, I told this to you all for us. I'll just share my secret. So anytime that I present, I have an accessibility mug. So it literally just has an alley mug that's on there. It doesn't matter which one. It's not one consistently. But anytime I've presented in person or anything like that, I always have just one little shot of whiskey, smallest one, just to calm the nerves one time. But I was talking to you all about it. You got to have when you talk in person. But when you talk virtually, you also have to because you're constantly thinking, do I have the audience? Do I not have the audience? Mm-hmm. Like, am I doing good stuff? Right. So I always stick with the mug and it's just stuck with me. Like, I don't don't even have whiskey glasses anymore. I'm just my wife would be like, you're drinking coffee. I'm like, nope. nope just constantly whiskey yep (laughs) yeah that's interesting and you've given away your trade secret though i know take the edge off i know now i won't be invited to speak anywhere so (laughs) (laughs) or you'll be invited more to speak they're like yes this guy's life to the party yeah look out in the crowd hopefully when we get back to in person everybody will have coffee mugs i'll be like oh yeah i know what's in there let's go all right (laughs) (laughs) i will definitely do that Mm. on the nose of this one i'm getting i like this one almond extract Mm, you just influenced me. I was going to say vanilla, actually, but it might be. Mm, and yeah, I could a little vanilla, too. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of uh, citrus, some lemon or something. I am getting like like a kind of almost like a creme brulee, like the top, a little charred sugary top mm. when I drink it. Yeah. That's the port barrels. Mm. <laughs> or is a little sweeter. I was going to say vanilla piece. It does. I do taste vanilla in it. Yeah. This is really good. Like, this is really, really good. Yeah. Tastes like um, fresh cut grass, <laughs> aluminum foil. <laughs> I like to put arbitrary descriptors in there. So throw off. I've only got like a handful of actual ones that apply. But yeah, I could I could say like either like a bit of like dulce de leche or creme brulee, like like the crusty sugar top. Yeah, there's a little bit of toastiness to it. I, I could say like a toasted marshmallow or something as well would be, you know, any of those like crystallized burned sugar kind of taste is getting a little bit of that for sure yeah it's interesting yeah i could i could dig it yeah it's got a little of that finishing flavor but it's good i haven't had an angel's envy in a while and i had a friend back some years ago that had one that was like i want to say like a 10 year and had some other fancy stuff with it and it was like a 180 dollar bottle and i was like well i'm glad i'm trying <laughs> yours yeah i know i was like it's good but like I don't know. When you start to approach those things, it better be like, you've blown my doors off. This is amazing. <laughs> and I'm not sure it applied there, but their regular offering here, I have to say like, yeah, this is a nice like regular sipper. It's got a yeah, yeah. tinge of burn, nothing too crazy, easy to have straight up. So I'll just go first in the tentacle scale. Do it. One to eight. We started segregating by whiskey type now. We used to like lump them all together, but now it's getting to be like a little much. So here we go. We've got a bourbon with a finish on it. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid six. Would have again. I think the price point is great. It was like 45 for me. So all things seem pretty good there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would agree. I don't know. It's always hard for me to put my finger on like exactly why I like something or not. But I I think a six sounds about right. I would drink this anytime. Later tonight. (laughs) No, I mean, I actually just kind of save all of these. I have a big stockpile of tons of whiskey just waiting to open a whiskey library. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel like everybody has that, though. Like if you work with people who are like, I'll send you whiskey, you like end up being like, yeah, yeah I'll sip that. You know, what? I could drink that all the time. Then you end up with like 30 bottles and you're like, wow, I don't even remember what I have. Yeah, that's kind of where like I got to my previous job is what we do. We used to send whiskey back and forth to each other. And then like I ended up one winter, I was like wow, I have like 25 bottles of whiskey. Like I need to do something with this <laughs> instead of just being like, I tried this and it was great. Like, 
just leaving it be. Yeah. It becomes a problem. <laughs> I have a different kind of problem. Where you have zero bottles of whiskey. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, crap. I drank that one for next week's podcast. I better get a new one. Yeah. It happens. I had family in town this weekend. You know, they're, they're interested. I'm from Kentucky, too. So, you know, they're very interested. Oh, nice. Where are you located? Oh, you, you all can have a laugh at this. So I am in Illinois, but I am in the great mm. metropolis of normal Illinois. Yes, normal. Oh. N-O-R-M-A-L. Yep. <laughs> I am as normal as they come. I'm a normalite through and through. Mm. So if you need context, Bloomington Normal is where State Farm Insurance's headquarters is. That's where I first started my career at State Farm. Mm. So, yeah, State Farm. So if you grew up in Bloomington Normal, somebody in your family probably works at State Farm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> At some point in time, we do have the Rivian factory here now, too, who makes the Rivian trucks. Oh, yeah. Um, electric cars, which is super dope. Yeah. Mm. So we get to see those driving around. It's actually super cool. Mm-hmm. Price point wise and stuff. There's a lot of people who worked here that got kind of like first access. Like some of my neighbors have Rivian trucks. They're so cool. Yeah. Like it's so cool to see those things driving around. I test drove one two weeks ago. Oh, did you? Yeah, I'm on the list. Very cool. For like two years now. but Awesome. They just got like the Amazon electric trucks done because they did a whole contract for Amazon. We're supposed to in town. They're supposed to go to like Chicago somewhere else, but like because we're awesome in normal Illinois, you know, mm-hmm. they're supposed to send those and let those kind of go around town here. So I'll be interested to see those as well because it's really cool. Like they have exploded in town to the point where like we have people from all over the country here working and like the housing market here has been bonkers mm. to find like even a place to live for some people just because they've opened up like between five to 10K of jobs just for manufacturing a plant. So it's pretty cool. It's actually exciting time to be here. Yeah, wow. Exciting time to be in normal, normal Illinois. <laughs> Seems pretty normal to me. It's not, not a normal time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many jokes be made there and we're just getting started. <laughs> so let's circle back. You didn't do your tentacle rating, Mark. Yes. How do you feel about this whiskey? I was actually going to agree. I was going to say actually like about a six out of eight. I, I think this is really good. It's a really good sipper. I'm really picky about that. Cause like if there's some, whiskey's a hit and i'm like when i get done with it like it's got like a little bite afterwards i'm like eh, like i won't come back to it this is one that i could just sit and sip this is really good like i really really like this one yeah cool i say six out of eight because there's like a scale there's a there's a good scale there's if you get to eight out of eight it gets like to dangerous like i could drink all this really quickly (laughs) it doesn't bother but like six out of eight is good yeah i will only drink this as an eight we've never had an eight so far so are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I thought the old Forester was an eight. Well, I'll have to go back and listen to that one. Yeah, to track this. To capture all these in an app, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll go back and check on that because I don't recall it. I think I knew some sevens, but... Yeah, I don't know. It makes me think of an old Friends episode. Seven. Seven. Okay. We should move on. Yes. You mentioned that many times as well. <laughs> Which I finally figured out the reference. After like oh, good. many weeks of you mentioning it and me thinking about when did this happen? I finally got it, but we'll let other people figure that out. Think about it if they haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> There's also the whole, uh, yeah, what is it? Like when something about Mary, the seven minute abs, seven minute abs, man, that's it. And they're like, what if someone invents six minute abs? No, seven, seven's the magic number. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about accessibility. Let's talk about serious things. Yes. That's why we're here partially. You gave a little bit of an intro into kind of what you're doing now and all that. Tell us about your journey there. Like, how did you get into web development in general? And were you always kind of accessibility focused or did you do a bunch of years of not doing that and then go down that path? Or how'd you get here? Yeah, my story is actually 
not like I always say, everybody always like when I say my story, they're like, ah, oh, it's so different than like how everybody else got to. It's really not. <laughs> I always say this accessibility has like a moment of impact. And the moment of impact is when you're just like, oh, like I finally see like, okay, why does accessibility matter? Right. I have that like click of like, wow, this is a whole new world introduced to myself. So how I got there, I actually, <laughs> when I was in college, this was kind of one of my fun facts to talk about later. Um, I coach high school football as well in the fall. Been doing it for 10 years. I wanted to get into business teacher education when I started with until I observed a high school class and was like, oh my God, hell no, I can't do this um, <laughs> every <laughs> single day. So my next thing was I always I always wanted to do programming aside. I wanted to teach to be more of like a teacher teaching web development, right? Programming like in high school, it's still lacking across the country. So I wanted to do that, but I didn't. So what I did was I went in, got a degree like in business information systems and computer science Meyer. Jumped in and right when I went to State Farm, I went to statefarm.com. I love this story because my teammate now, um, who is a kind of our team lead for this, is the one who I'm going to mention here in the story. So I was tasked within my first year of making this map module thing for statefarm.com. Lovely thing. Search for agents, right? Search for it. You can see the pens on the maps. All lovely, right? So <laughs> I make this. Do it record time. Feel great about myself. And I send it over. And then all of a sudden... I have these issues come back and it won't go to production because well, I have accessibility issues. What the hell are accessibility issues? <laughs> I have 256 unique accessibility issues. That's not repeated. <laughs> so you're talking about in the thousands. And the person I work with now is the person who evaluated it. So we're really good friends. He was the one who brought me over to Fidelity. He was like, yeah, this is not good. And basically like some of the other folks that are within State Farm Accessibility Team were like, this is horrible. Like this, if I was... If I was a user using a screen reader, if I was a user who's colorblind, right? If I was a user just using a keyboard, I could not do anything with this, right? And it's just an agent locator, right? Map, search, little agent details down below underneath it. We thought we made it accessible. That's when it all flipped for me. So I sat with my teammate now and a couple other folks who were blind, low vision, sat with them. And that was my moment of impact. The moment that I saw someone use assistive technology, a screen reader, and actually use it and go through like all the stuff and all the pain that I was causing them for something that if you're looking at like how an insurance company works, that's a major thing. I have to find my insurance agent, right? That's huge in the digital age. So I'm blocking somebody from being able to do a basic functionality of trying to find somebody, right? And so what I did, <laughs> what I did was I sat with them and that changed my perspective on everything. And ever since then, I kind of got into the accessible. I was like, man, this is really cool. Like I didn't know that the internet kind of was able to be used by people with disabilities. I didn't know that. And there's a lot of people that don't know that. If you look on blog posts, anything like that, people say, somebody who's blind can use the internet. Yeah. Like it may sound arrogant to somebody out there, but people don't know. And they don't know that someone can use a screen reader to do that. So I didn't. I was in that same boat. I was that person. I was that arrogant person that learned from my own mistakes. If I can say anything from anybody on this podcast, if you listen, if you have an opportunity, sit with somebody who uses assistive technology, right? Whether that's high contrast mode, not just a screen reader, right? Some type of assistive technology, because it will change your perspective on everything and make you be like, wow, what I just did was awful. <laughs> I had a major impact for that. And so ever since then, then I jumped into accessibility. I was on State Farm's web accessibility team for a couple of years. I jumped to State Farm's accessibility team for about three of my years. After that, then I wanted to make the jump to do a little bit bigger reach. Again, I kind of said this in my intro. My goal was to reach out to developers because... We'll get into this later as we go, but my goal is to reach out to developers because I felt like there is a gap. Developers are kind of like left high and dry. There's project managers, things like that. Be like, here's accessibility issues and go fix them, right? 
but nobody ever talked to devs a lot like this is what you should be doing day to day. This is how you can fix accessibility issues. So we don't come knocking on your door and say, you know, here's the accessibility issues with it. So I went to DeQ Systems, uh, one of the best accessibility companies that's out there. I was there for about three years. I loved every second I was there. Um, I got to do a lot of the JavaScript stuff that we're going to talk about today, automation pieces, things like that. I loved it. My passion, though, after I was there for a bit was I wanted to kind of get back to when I was at State Farm, I was kind of part of that well-oiled machine. There was already an accessibility team there. It was going. And so when I jumped to Fidelity, it was more of like the beginning stages of it. So I wanted to build that, right? I wanted to take what I've learned, build that up, do the same things we talked about from there. And really, it's been my passion the whole time, right? And even outside of this, I think I mentioned this initially, I write all the time on uh, Dev.2. I write for a lot of different places. I talk as many things as I can. And it's not out of like me being like an egomaniac and being like, I need to talk to people because I like to talk. No, because I, I feel like accessibility is something that is just flat out not talked about enough. There's not enough people, even in my, I'm 32, okay? Like I know I have grays in my beard for anybody on here, but like I'm 32 and I can tell you right now, there's not a lot of developers that are newer coming out of college that are in their 20s, late 20s, even 30s past where I'm at, you know what the hell accessibility is. And so my passion is to get in front of as many of those people as possible so I can give them ways in the environment that's out there for web. I can give them ways to deal with accessibility and make accessibility a part of the daily process. So that's kind of my long-winded story. I know we're going to get in more detail on some of that stuff, but that's kind of how I fell into accessibility. Nice. I think in general, I would agree with your statements around it not being like top of mind for getting things to production. Like yeah. it's not only like, you know, not top of mind or whatever else, but it's not like built into the definition of done for companies yeah. when they're trying to deploy product and features and all that kind of stuff. It's not, you know, it's, it seems like it's user feedback afterthought and then you loop back and then you loop back and then you loop back, at least in my yeah, experience. That's... And I can see that in like enterprise to small. And at the end of the day, if you can somehow build it into process or tools to where even your startup MVP can have this kind of bolted on pretty easily, then that like yeah. that'll increase uptake. But yeah, yeah, yeah I think that uh, it's great what you're evangelizing. Though. Yeah, and, and even so, like what you talked about there, a lot of things we see from like definition of done is literally a checkbox that says is accessible. Yeah. Dope. What the hell does that mean? Right. Yeah. Like, what was is accessible mean? Like, I can check that box too and be like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I checked this box is accessible. It looks great. Right. No, like that's that's one of the small details. But yeah. Yeah. Were you able to check the box because the box was accessible? Is that what we're trying to do? <laughs> the- that's what it is. You can tab through and hit enter. And-, yeah. <laughs> and what's great about like a lot of tools that devs use, for, like, you know, Jira and things like that for issue tracking, that most of those, like, they're pretty accessible, but there's still some that people use out there that aren't accessible. So, like, hey, you're asking for somebody who's a disability advocate and accessibility advocate to do that. They can't even click like, yeah, it's accessible some of the times. Like, yeah, I've done that for some of my stuff in the past, like way back when they would tell us to go through just naturally when you start to do stuff, you start to just use keyboard instead of mouse. And I go there and be like, I can't get this checkbox. that says has been accessibly reviewed. Awesome. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Accessibility as core. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Those things all exist everywhere. It's almost um, like a metaphor where someone has been asked to, hey, make sure this is accessible. And they're like, OK, I'll check the box. Yeah. Yes. That it is. But no understanding of what that means. Yeah, I think. And this is something I had a, a point to talk about here in our notes. But I think part of the problem is like the traditional path to programming, which, you know, there's debate all on all sides of is HTML programming is CSS programming what like it's all (laughs) programming but you know a lot of the traditional computer science type classes are based around like you're coding back-end code on a mainframe somewhere and like it needs to run 
No one is seeing it or doing anything with it. And I think that being the basis for like how people until, you know, relatively modern times, the Internet's getting older now, but like it's still compared to when coding started, it's still pretty young. You know, people just haven't flipped that switch in like coursework and on computer science and stuff that like we need to talk about how this can be used by other people and not just how you write a thing that runs and passes the tests and like you're done, move on to the next thing. And it's a fundamental issue. So one of the things that I've talked about a lot in truth be told, it gets attention, but like not at the right level of attention is when the JavaScript framework like craze came in, right? Everybody was like, hey, look at this. We can make faster sites, more data, more this, more that, right? Like all this fun stuff. What ended up happening was every single thing that you just talked about was left in the dust. So when I was in college, I took one web course. Literally, is like with JSPs and XHTML and stuff that's like totally freaking irrelevant now, right? Uh. But like now what it is, there's literally college courses on React. How the hell does that help anybody who needs to know basics of HTML? It doesn't. Uh -huh. Because then what ends up happening is, is every single corporation, it's basically three layers. First is college courses, just like you had said, right? College comes in, they say, well, corporation tells us we need to teach React. We need to teach JavaScript. We got to do this, right? So basic HTML, they say, hey, take this optional thing on HTML. Okay, sure. All three of us are probably been college students. Guess what? You're going to take anything as optional? <laughs> Hell no, you're not going to take anything as optional, right? So you're going to skip that. Mm -hmm. And then the next layer after that is when I get hired. So what do companies do to try to make them more flashy, right? Go out to a job board, react, got to have this skill, this skill, this skill. Nothing in there says anything about basic HTML, says anything about basic CSS, right? It's all fundamental for that. So now business is driving. We need to do React, 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 Angular, Vue, right? All those pieces from it, right? So we have to build all these things up from JavaScript. Right? I know I'm saying React, Angular, Vue, there's Ember, spell all those fun stuff with it too. But like Ember's dead. <laughs> I will be first to say Ember should Chuck is a hater. Ember should not be dead because it's got great accessibility documentation, but that's my plug for it. Yep. But I will say from that side of things, the last step of it then is the dev. Because now you have developers that get to the end, end goal, they have jobs. They have no clue what a button tag is. Everything is divs. Everything is spans. I talk about this a lot. I've done a talk on it, done an article on it. You get everybody into this tangled web of ARIA, mm -hmm. right? So accessible rich internet applications, basically you get these attributes you can put onto HTML tags that basically allow you to make it whatever you want to, right? I can make a div into a button, add a roll button to a screen user, right? I can do whatever I want to. But you end up with horrid front-end code, right? So the basics are not being taught in favor of this gigantic changing thing that's in front of you, right? And so that's just a major, major issue we see. And it doesn't get the attention. So I can sit here and talk to both of you. I can talk to developers and say, this is a problem. And developers, for the most part, I'm different on this compared to everybody else, will say, yeah, you're right. Because developers say, yeah, you're wrong, are only being saying, no, you're wrong, because they have pressure from somebody else above them saying, no, you got to be doing React only, just focus on that, don't worry about accessibility, right? So that's where it comes from. Yeah. And that's the thing is you're, you're learning one non-native paradigm in API, first of all. So yes, I mean, React is very pervasive and whatever else, but I mean, in 10 years, anything could be dead. So it's hard to say, yeah. but uh, I mean, just regressing back to some of the things you're talking about HTML, I can remember this in like the mid 2000s, 
maybe you whippersnappers don't, but like, so <laughs> we were doing, I was coming out of like table websites and we were fighting about separation of concerns there and we need HTML and our JavaScript is a file here loaded in and our CSS is a file here loaded in, no style tags, no all this. We're like going through all of this massive fight. And I would say about mid 2000, it really was like, it caught on and people were doing it. And we had these separation of concerns. Yeah. 2014, React comes into play and it does offer a lot of really cool bells and whistles. Yeah. But JSX essentially began that regression from all of those things. And then everything's a component, right? Your router's a component, your, your anything's a component at this point. And the tags don't matter as much because the tags are just what you, you know, what class you created it as. And now whatever's in that class doesn't matter. And semantic HTML just ends up being fumbled because you're not really assembling your pages all in one place. Nobody has a, a, an understanding of that hierarchy. Remember the whole thing when like um, it was like article and section came to be and it gave you like semantics into structuring articles and yeah. you're supposed to be doing like just one H1 and just, you know, and breaking things down like that. Yeah. I would say that has very much gone to the wayside, mm -hmm. which is a shame because conversely in terms of like machine learning and machine reading of the internet, it makes all of that very difficult. So there's accessibility and then there's the machine learning aspect of it too. Yeah. Right. You want to give things a purpose Micro formats, I, I mentioned this once recently too, micro formats was a big push in that direction to have this like agreed upon set of rules of like, this is a contact card. And now you understand what you're getting into and what each like data bit is in there. Yep. So yeah, all gone. And I blame JSX. <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing, like the truth of the matter is, is I play this, like everybody always says, like you're, you're standing on the fence and I do. Like, I get the reason for why there's JavaScript frameworks for React, for an Ember, for Vue, for Angular. I get the reasons why, right? In modernized web, a lot of student data. But if you look at a lot of the stuff that's out there, right, the fundamentals just aren't there at all. Not even close. Like, no. to the point if I went to somebody who's new out of college, not, again, if anybody's listening to this and you're in college, I'm not saying, like, you guys are wrong. It's just you guys don't know, right? Is if I said, hey, if I wanted you to make me a semantic HTML, give me some semantics on a page, I guarantee you they would not understand there's a nav element. They wouldn't understand there's a section, there's a, there's a content info, there's a footer, right? All that stuff. They wouldn't know that. There's a select. Yeah, yeah there's a select, right? <laughs> yeah. So having these sweet selects that do like searches and all kinds of fun stuff, right? You can do on it, right? Yeah. So like those small things. And again, I come from that from a different angle. I look at that fundamental problem and say, how can we fix that problem that's out there? Because it's not going to go away. Right. Like as much as I would love to sit here and be like, let's just do plain HTML pages with JavaScript and go, ain't going to happen. Too far and deep, we got to figure out something, which accessibility is, as it usually is, when we start to play catch up, it's super far behind now, and we have to play catch up back to get to it. Yeah, so it's our responsibility within the industry to kind of lead and help people become successful and more knowledgeable. So it's sort of like that whole junior, fresh out of college, fresh out of accelerator, whatever else, they're not incentivized to provide that information. They're incentivized to go from graduation to hire in a short period of time, the success metric companies are saying, this is what we want. This is what we need from a hiring perspective. These basics aren't important. Let's just get productive. So we hire and then they come into the industry. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on that point. And I think then that just shows that it's kind of on us, the elder statesmen and ladies and they, them to provide that platform of like, hey, let's take a little time and go through some of this and just make sure that we're structuring the pages in a smart way that works for everyone. Yep. 
Yeah, I'd like to uh, go back a minute to something I just remembered that I thought about uh, when you were talking about like building that map and like I think about things that Fidelity might have graphs, charts, visualizations. Yeah. People know about accessibility. I don't know how many. And people think about, okay, let me do my tab indexes right. Let me like use the right elements. Do it. But when you're getting into these things that are like really interactive visualizations, I feel like I personally know nothing about making that accessible. Yeah. Like, sure. are there some knowledge tidbits around those sort of things you could share with some folks here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So visualizations, data biz, again, I will tell you this. Everybody for accessibility has got like one little like speciality to get into. And so like I always say there's someone else who knows more than me. So for, uh, Sarah Fossheim, if I say her last name correctly, they know way more than I do about like the data visualization stuff. But in general, when you look at data visualization, it's not just like my current company. It's it's all over, like where you talk about in general data visualization stuff. So what you want to look at with data biz is you want to make it as simplistic as you possibly can. I say that and both of you are going to be like, great. How do I make something that's like, you know, I'm showing, let's say over time, I'm tracking like money over time, right? Hey, where is this price at during this time frame, right? Where am I at during this time? How do I get that to people? So there's a number of different ways you can do it. One thing we always say, the accessibility tidbit with it is I have to have a different way to get the data out to somebody. So what I mean by that is I can't just have a chart. I could have something like a table. Okay. So if it makes sense, I say if it makes sense, so like if it's a bar graph that just basically has certain points on certain dates, I could put that into a table, have it as a separate way to click at the top. And I could see that data represented in a table, put that into it. Right. And so one of the things with that is it gives them the option to be able to see that. So this is not just screen reader users too, right? People with cognitive disabilities consume data differently. So if I have a table there, it gives them the option to be like, hey, I can look at this data in the speed that I want to. Now with color, now with everything like that, like, hey, where was I at on this day, right? Or where was this bar chart at at this time, right? That's one way. Another way when you get to like complex line graphs, I'm sure you see them all over the place. You go to like Yahoo Finance, you go to Google Stocks, right? Anything like that, right? You see them all up and down. You could give a summary point too. Hey, what was the low? What was the highest? What's it at today, right? And put that summary at some place underneath that as well to give them that point. That's more of like consuming it more from a screamer standpoint, from a cognitive disability standpoint. But also when it comes to like the graphical content, people forget about this. The color schemes we use for the content that's there, you gotta be able to have a color scheme that matches. So from a web content accessibility guideline standpoint, you have to have a color contrast compliant um, set of colors you're using, right? And on top of that, you really shouldn't just be using color only. You should be using some type of pattern. So for example, once in the field, back to like the line graph that goes all over the place. Let's say I have a red line. I have a green line. Awesome. Let's say I'm red, green, colorblind. How do I know the difference? Right? I know. So I can use different shapes on those spots. I can use different patterns on those spots, right? To be able to do that. There's a lot that goes into uh, graphical content that's out there. And again, it's everywhere, right? I mean, if you want a really good example... Any news site, if you ever see like election maps, news sites love to put election maps out there that are data viz all over the place. If you look at them, they're literally just red and blue states. Right. Dope. What state is that, right? As simple as it might be for the three of us to be like, that's Illinois, right? That's Kentucky. It might not be, right? So I got to put a label onto that. As simple as red and blue might be because the Democrat or Republican won that one, right? How do I know, right? So you have to be able to have different ways to contextualize data 
pay that back. I could go on for a long time with this, but there's a lot. Those are like the simplistic things to do kind of when it comes to data visualizations. Gotcha. Well, even your simplistic examples are like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Once you've said it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even like myself, when I look at like I keep using line graphs because they tend to be like the one that everybody likes to show for training data. I don't use bar graphs anymore. It's a lot of line graphs. Even when I look at them, I'm like, if you get five or six lines on there, I'm like, hold on, that goes to what? That does what? Like, I, what are you talking about, right? So it's nice to kind of have those patterns or those shapes to tell you, okay, I'm following this along the way, got it. Or even so, I need a summary just for this piece that I want to look at, right? Show me a summary for us. It was low, it was high, flight, and through. So those small things can make data visualizations much more accessible. But again, data viz is one of those areas that like, there's so much that goes into it and so many different things that can go along with it. So yeah, just looking at that, that's some just small things with data viz. And I say small, if you're all looking at me like, that's a lot. Like, There's a lot that goes into data viz. <laughs> there really is. Yeah. I think the more you layer on top of any app, the more you're going to have to dial it back and think about the base concepts to make it accessible. Because like, I think we talked about this on the last accessibility episode where like people have a lot of parallax scroll and animations and crazy things that aren't really forms and all this stuff's moving around. And it's like, but what happens if I turn all that off? Does your site still work? Because I bet 90% of them no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I I made a joke one time with the people I work with. I was like, you know, not sites that we work with, other sites out there. If I turned off JavaScript, which you can do, by the way, PSA alert for everybody out there, you can turn off JavaScript. I guarantee you half the websites that are out there would just be like blank white pages that do nothing because JavaScript is so prevalently used behind the scenes. Nothing would be functional with it. And you'd end up with a page that is just horridly inaccessible, just bare bones, right? Yeah. We use like static site generation for our page. So there's like separate pages. So it's a little bit better. But one of the things you get with a JavaScript framework with that is it kind of fakes that and still lives on top. And then like, when you page transition, you can fade in and out and stuff, which you can't do with two HTML pages. Yeah. Right. You still have to hit the server and re-render and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. There's stuff in the works for like actual browser transitions, but it's not there yet. But yeah, but yeah I mean, I don't know where I was going with that, but like stuff like Astro, <laughs> you know, really have another really lets you make a site in like the JavaScript framework model that you're used to and you like developing in and then ships all like html and like no javascript and that i think is the next wave of stuff and we have server-side rendering too now which is like essentially taking us back to what it used to be and hardware's better and instead of writing it in php you get to write it in javascript now i guess yeah yeah so right back to what you said though about like the page transition thing i've spent like in my time i've probably spent consulting like hours with teams being like here's how you do page transitions between javascript frameworks because there's nothing to it. it. For those of you who don't know, if I switch, I'm doing air quotes right now, if I switch between pages and a JavaScript framework, which is essentially a single page app, focus just goes nowhere, right? And so there's a lot of stuff out there. Marcy Sutton actually has some of the best stuff that's out there about what you should do for page transitions that's available. And so a lot of things have it built in. It's starting to get better. Some applications actually start and have this built into the framework themselves, but page transition stuff, I mean, you don't think about it, but when I use a JavaScript framework, if I switch a page, nothing happens. If I don't control it, nothing happens, right? It's not like static server render right behind the scenes where, yes, it goes back to the top of the page and I'm good to go. Mm. No, just float in the ether and do nothing. (laughs) So I don't know if I've done anything or if the link's broken, right? That's the number one complaint when React started to get popular. Actually, when Angular first started to get popular, that was the number one complaint 
was I click a link. I had no idea what it did. Did I go somewhere? Did something new change? I don't know, right? Because there's nothing that said a new page load. There's no load, just happens, right? So Ugh. that's some small things you don't think about with JavaScript frameworks and accessibility. Yeah, I know there's a like a Ember accessibility add-on that uh, like announces all your transitions and stuff, like hooks into the router and hmm. there is because again, another PSA for this. Ember is dope and nobody knows about that because it's got some dope alley stuff to it. So I'm telling you. That's what I've been saying for years. <laughs> Thank you. See? Beautiful. Yes, this popularity is decline, but I'm telling you right now, it is awesome. Got some great accessibility documentation by Melanie. It's awesome. It is. I was going to say, that's what it has. It has Melanie Sumner. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So I guess we can continue down. Like, how would we integrate some of this into our development life cycles and automated testing? And once we've learned about some of these things, finally, how do we keep ourselves on the right path and keep buy-in high for this sort of thing? Yep. So one of the things that I always tell development teams is accessibility is not a flip of the switch. Okay. In the, in the field that we're at right now, there's not going to be something that JavaScript's out there and says you're fixed, right? No way. That's not going to happen. It's the same thing with learning accessibility. A lot of people in the field, anybody having the show, if you ask this question say, have you been asked the training to do one training and they'll know accessibility. Everyone will say yes, because it happens like every place I've ever been to that happens. Right. So it's a process, right? It takes time to get there. And one of the pieces that I always suggest, especially in the JavaScript framework world, is using automation. Now, before everybody jumps the gun, does automation replace manual testing? Absolutely not, right? Manual testing comes along as part of the process with the development process itself, right? But to start with, if I use automation, whether that's a linter, believe it or not, there's accessible linters. So if you use something like AxeLinter, which is a AxeCore plugin for linting for React, Angular, I think it has, I think it has stuff for Vue, but it can catch accessibility issues. Mind you, it's probably like a lower 25% just because it's a static code analyzer. It can catch that though as you go, right? Something like that. Simple and plain is using a linter. But again, out there, if you use Vue, React, Angular, there's specific ES linters that have accessibility rules in there too. So no matter what, if you use a linter, it's got some accessibility rules, turn them on, use it. That's first and foremost, that's the easiest automation to use. The next one is figuring out how do you integrate automation accessibility within your test cases, right? There's basically like two schools of thought here. Do you do it at a unit level? So if I'm talking Angular, it's like Karma. If I'm talking React, is it like within Jest? Or do I do it at an integration level? And my answer always is, it totally depends on where your team is getting the most effective testing at. Mm. If I'm good in React, I'm testing with Jest, right? And I get that component level testing, fantastic, right? Start there. Test your components, make sure they're accessible, right? If you use something like Pali, or people call Pali, or AxeCore, right, you're still looking at like 40% of accessibility issues that are going to be caught. But that 40% is huge. It can help you make a baseline accessible application. And if you notice those links that are in, inside there, like, hey, they're help links, they can help you learn accessibility. That's the biggest thing. That's my biggest advocacy for automation is it helps developers learn accessibility on the fly. So if I don't know what it means when somebody says this doesn't have an accessible name, I can click a link in like AxeCore and take me out and say, this is what it means for accessible name. So now I go, got it. And now I can do that as I go on. I'm doing it without thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the biggest benefits of automation. Again, like I said, it depends on where you want to do it. If you want a perfect world, I would say you do it at both a unit level and an integration level. Let me tell you why. If I do a unit level for automation, especially like if I'm using a JavaScript framework, 
I might test a component. That component is 100% accessible. I throw three of those components on the page. They all have heading level ones. Guess what? That doesn't make very much sense, does it, right? Or maybe I have something that introduces multiple IDs. So you want to do multiple levels of tests to make sure that, hey, at a unit level, it's accessible and at an integration level, it's accessible as well, right? And so I always advocate for that as like the golden child of like, yeah, this is what you should do. However, when you're getting started, that's where you want to start, right? Get the basics, Lint, and then figure out where it's the best to do automation testing for your team. Where is it going to be the most effective where you are going to say, hey, I run these every day. I get the results. I fix them. Just doing that small bit gets teams thinking about accessibility, right? Those small little things of thinking of accessibility gets us moving in the right direction. Because again, we're not going to file swoop this and say, yep, automation, manual, Lego, right? Nope, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. Do those small pieces and they add up. Well, you know that engineers are very motivated by getting all the green dots and being able to hit that merge button. <laughs> yep. So I think that's a key thing. You show that yep. as an organization, accessibility is important to you. You put the roadblock there, you give them helpful tools yep. and you just make it part of, I, you want to merge your feature. You just has to get past this threshold. Yeah, exactly. And that's the next step, right? Like the next step of it is now I make this as part of my code commitment, mm-hmm. right? I have to run a lens. I have to run accessibility tests from an automation standpoint, right? And once I have that, I have an automation strategy in place, right? At, at a low level, like people argue with me, there's a lot more it goes into, and there is, but that's a good automation strategy to have. Checking linting, I'm checking in my code for it. I have a check whenever I check into GitHub, whatever it is. I have automation running. I have no issues from it. Boom, right? Automation is up and running. Yeah. It's just like the more things you can remove as a concern, the more time you can focus on the things that you know you can't automate. Like before Prettier came out, there would be so many PR comments of like, oh, can you like add a space or like put a semicolon or we're like, no, it doesn't matter anymore. It autumn <laughs> does everything. We're never going to have these comments again. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if my old teammates from my days at the queue were listening to this right now, like prettier, I always used to be like, yeah, it's fine. Prettier said it's okay. And they'd be like, no, this looks awful. When I checked in code, I'd be like, no, nah, it's fine. Just let it go. <laughs> yeah, it does some questionable things sometimes, but uh, <laughs> absolutely. It is what it is. Yep. It ends up being a standard we can all agree on. Oh, yeah. So now that we're over that, like tabs or spaces, maybe we can make things accessible for people. Yeah. So then the next piece with that, though, like once I have automation in place, I'm a huge advocate for this. A minimum, you should start to introduce manual testing. Now, I'm never going to tell a developer they have to be an accessibility expert. Yes, you can have an argument with me about you should have an accessibility champion or team that's not a me, right? Or somebody else that knows accessibility in and out, but you should at least know automation, right? I have that running. I'm learning a little bit, but you want to introduce small manual tests. And as simple as having keyboard testing to where, hey, I made, I always use the example because I have this in here. So whenever I do presentations, I do Star Wars based stuff. If you all notice the Star Wars stuff behind me, right? Mm-hmm. I always have one. So I have one that I just did for one of my Axcon talks. And I did an Obi Kenobi lightsaber behind it. And what I did was made it like Amazon. There was an image. I could add to cart, how many were left, all that fun stuff on it, right? If I did that and I just did ARIA only with that, guess what? I might see that if I just had ARIA roll a button and I use keyboard test just to click that, oh, you know, a button doesn't actually, or a something that's not made with a button does not have the ability to click enter a space. I have to code that in. That is caught with keyboard testing, right? As simple as that is, adding keyboard testing is just enhancing your accessibility definition of done, right? And even if you don't have keyboard testing, right? If you can go above and beyond keyboard testing, I always include whether it's QA or your developers that are doing this, there's like quick little visual tests you can do, right? 
as simple as, did I use color alone, right? The color alone indicate that this has an error. It's just red that shows there's an error. No, it's a problem, right? Cool, I gotta fix that. Did that input field that I make have a persistent label that didn't go away? Boom, successfully check, right? Those are visible things I can do really quickly as I go through. And that can be a part of definition done. Everybody hears manual accessibility testing and they freak out. They go, yeah, you're telling me I gotta learn a screen reader. No, would I love you to learn a screen reader, how to use it, how to go through with it, testing your content holistically? Absolutely, but we're talking about building steps from automation to doing manual testing. And that's how we get there is doing small things like keyboard testing and then small visual tests with that. Is it perfect? No, it's imperfect, but it does catch more accessibility issues and build that confidence in development teams so they can make content that is accessible, right? And that's the whole goal of it. Yeah, for sure. So let's move into some whatnot here. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think you opened the door there with Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, obviously you like Star Wars. We see a few things behind you. Yep. Tell us about that. Do you like everything Star Wars has put out? Are there any like, oh. have you watched all the shows, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, all the things? Like, is there anything you're like, oh, this doesn't track with everything else? Or <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not I'm not one of those people that's just like, I watch a Star Wars show and I'm like, this is the worst, I'm done watching this stuff. Like, I'll watch all this right. stuff, but there's stuff I like more than that. So like, if you take something as an example of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, mm -hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobi show, last two episodes got to where they wanted to get to. Why we needed four more episodes before that, I don't know, right? Like, cool, <laughs> you want to have a reshow down with Darth Vader, got it. Like, just make that happen. Just be like, cool. They realize the Anakin Skywalker is like that stuff. Boba Fett, if you take it for what it is, it's essentially four episodes about Boba Fett being a leader. And then the rest is about being a Mandalorian spinoff. Okay, like that wasn't what I expected with it, but yeah, is what it is. I watch everything though. It just made me want more Mandalorian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like right, like right when Episode Five came back, like Return of the Mandalorian, I was like, "This is awesome!" And I was like, "Oh wait, I should be cheering for Boba Fett right now." Like, wait, what's going on? So I mean, it has some good stuff, but like they didn't know like what they're doing. My thing with Star Wars is, is this? I, I would go super nerd here. Just like when it comes to, like the Jedi stuff. Like, they've done those stories. They pushed them. Like, do some other stuff. Like, I'm really excited for the Andor stuff because Rogue One was awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, the Andor stuff's cool. I watched all the way to the animated stuff. As you can tell, I have the Bad Batch back here, too. It's like, Bad Batch is cool because mm -hmm. there's no, like, Force users. Just about, like... Rebels. Yeah. You got Rebels. Isn't that where they first introduced that uh, Mandalorian lightsaber? Right? Yeah. Well, they introduced it in Clone Wars, too. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, which is... I mean, the Darksaber's right here, just so you all know. Yep. So, it's, it's sitting right off camera. But, yeah, so all that stuff... Like, in general, I like it. I dislike some stuff. Like, the sequel trilogies were... I am a different person with the sequel trilogies weren't too bad. The last one, I didn't like. Only because they took the fan backlash for The Last Jedi. And they were like, let's just not do any of the stuff we were talking about here. And let's just off-write it and just bring back Emperor. Like, no. If people didn't like it, then write yourself out of that into off of what they did. But they just backtracked all of it. And I was like, ah, no. Not a fan. So, so, yeah. I go back and forth, back and forth. But I actually just went... This June, my son, who is going to be two next week. Very nice. We went down to Disney World for the first time, so I got to go to Star Wars Land. So I kind of told my wife. Oh, nice. Yeah, we went to the Hollywood Studios. Told my wife, I was like, yeah, you all can go do whatever you want. I'm just going to stay here like all day. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll I, see you later. <laughs> I, I might have dropped a lot of money on that stuff. I got to build two droids, build a lightsaber. It's off over here. I, you have to buy like a, a special stand for it because it now just fall off my wall. Mm. But I did all that stuff. It was super awesome. It was so cool. Like I... People give Disney flack for a lot of stuff with that, but like Star Wars Land stuff is super cool. Like it really is. Yeah. It's really, really cool experience. I got to drive the Millennium Falcon twice. I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was an engineer on that, so I didn't get to do anything cool. 
Mm. <laughs> nice. There's a hack there. So they have this thing called like the, I don't know, it's sort of like the family pass thing. So it's sort of like if you waited through line once and someone was hanging back watching the kids, you can actually go back and then come back to the line and skip ahead. Really? Then do it a second time. Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. I forget what it's called exactly. I'll have to share that hack. Please do. Not like the paid fast pass thing? No, it's different than fast pass. It's this whole like family thing that you get to do and you're like, and they know because you scan and they're like, oh yeah, I guess you were just here or whatever. Hmm. And you just get to skip and do a second ride. Hmm. Interesting. With like the other person who didn't get to because they were hanging back with kids. That's cool. Hmm. So with young kids, that's kind of a thing. Nice. Yeah, I can see that being abused, but that's, I think the spirit of that is a very good idea. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people don't know. I went with a Disney employee, so that helped. Mm-hmm. He he knew what was going on. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and he couldn't just get you immediately to the front? <laughs> no, 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 no. They don't get those perks or whatever else, but he did know, like, you can do this. Mm-hmm. He actually works in the uh, department for the ticketing system for the parks. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Fun fact. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know enough about Star Wars to continue talking about Star Wars. Honestly, I've watched all of them, but like I don't mm-hmm. remember all like deep into the lore and, and everything. Oh, and I know lots of things. I felt I found Obi-Wan very I mean, I was born the year the first Star Wars came out. So, you know, I feel akin to it. Sure. And uh, I was deeply satisfied by the clash of. Yeah. Darth Vader and Obi-Wan in Obi-Wan. You know, I don't know. Yeah, my brother was like, I don't know. I didn't lie. (laughs) Complaint, complaints. And I was like, I don't know. I was satisfied by that interaction. So it worked for me. Yeah. It was kind of fun. Yeah. Because the stuff after this has already happened. Yeah. They're like, no one's going to die. So you don't have to be like stressed and like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know? Yeah. So. Right. What a twist that killed Obi-Wan at the end. Oh my God. (laughs) We do all Star Wars lore. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. 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 Well, I, for me, it was like good because like there was really nothing to their fight in A New Hope. Yeah. They kind of like, oh, clashed lightsabers a couple of times. And Obi-Wan's like, I give up. <laughs> you are like, oh, that's really underwhelming. But then, you know, that like he's just old and carrying this burden for so long. And they had yeah. had these, you know, he had all this guilt and they'd had these clashes. And here it is. They're kind of at their yep. peak in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I did think it was dope, though, because the fact of the matter is, like, they spent the whole Obi-Wan show. Sorry, just spoilers for anybody who hasn't watched Obi-Wan yet, but we'll yeah, just. Yeah, we're past that now. <laughs> when he's helping to rescue Leia and it's Luke, I think it's pretty cool now, though. Like, if you look at New Hope, where he sees Luke and Leia together, and that's when he actually, like, gets rid of his lightsaber and lets them get killed. I think it's actually kind of cool mm. now that they've both been like, hey, like, they're together. Yeah, you're screwed, Darth Vader. I'm just going to let you kill me now. I think that's actually kind of cool, like, that part of it where. They build that up too. But again, those are like small details they build in for like super nerds like myself where I'm like, that's awesome. Right. Like, that's really cool. You guys did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. We can talk about other things, Robbie, you know, so you don't feel less than. Yeah. I mean, whatever. <laughs> I, I know a little bit about college football. I know nothing. Oh, geez. Which I hear you're a fan of. Yes. Yeah. But Chuck only likes proper football. So I only like proper football, not this. Egg ball game. So I have to ask, I have to ask you, Chuck, what's proper football to you then? Well, that would be European football. Like football. Yes. Yes. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I don't watch soccer, but that's not all of my friends when I was growing up. They were soccer fanatics. I never got into it. The only thing I like about soccer is the crowds. (laughs) I think the crowds are awesome and hilarious. I think it's great. I do. Yeah. That side of things. But I just never got into football myself. Football. Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, I just make that joke. Yeah. So let's talk about football football yeah (laughs) Yeah. so 
my thing is for everybody on here and people who have seen me talk for like I wear a back backwards baseball cap every single time also because I have no hair but I collect hats I'm a White Sox fan I'm one of five people in Illinois who are a White Sox fan everybody else goes fan <laughs> for God's sakes <laughs> but I do collect hats what I do I'm a huge college football fan so what I actually do <laughs> is go wherever I travel for work so when I was at like DQ I traveled a lot more for work than I do now but I would travel and I would go to certain cities. I'd say, hey, what college football team is there? And I would go find their stadiums themselves. I can't say I've snuck onto some stadiums. I've successfully snuck on a Stanford football <laughs> field. I um, got told to leave. I just walked in the press entrance and was like, hey, I'm, I couldn't think of a press name. So I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and left. Nice. But there's a couple ones I've walked onto. And every place I go to, um, I collect tax, try to buy a hat from there then too. Um, it's kind of like one of a memento as I go. But as I do those, I really do like to see the stadiums, get as close as I can. I don't sneak onto every stadium. I'm not that kind of person. But recently, the most recent one, when I was in Raleigh for a trip for Fidelity, I was actually at North Carolina State Stadium. So my teammates were listening to me say the same thing I'm telling you all. And they're like, you like to go to football stadiums? Like, are you going to like run on the field and like get arrested? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I just like to see them like be like, hey, I saw Fully clothed, fully clothed. Yeah, we're not streaking across. So yeah, it's one thing that I do like to do though. It's, it's one of those things where like, I, growing up, always watched college football. I thought it was a cool thing. Similar to like what we were talking about with soccer, right? I liked college football just because of the crowds, different traditions, different stuff like that. And so that was one of the things that I wanted to do was see some of the stadiums where these things happen. So Stanford Stadium was cool to me because it's kind of like a square, which is weird for a stadium set up for football now. But it's really cool to see in person. Like this is an old stadium, bench seating, all that stuff. I'm like, this is really cool. Like, it's really cool to see. So I always do that just because. For me, it's one of the nerd things I do is I go there, I'll buy something that's like for that university, things like that. But I think it's really cool just to go see those stadiums there. Mm. And solely because I like the crowds of college football, similar to like football itself. <laughs> that's why I like live sports, actually. Even sports I don't care for most of the time. I'm like, I pretty much always say yes to going to live sports yeah. because the atmosphere is fun. Yeah. I, like, mm-hmm. I don't really want to, you know watch golf that much but the atmosphere is kind of fun believe it or not sure. especially here we have the phoenix open so it gets uh it's like an insane party here they're a little louder than most of them i was gonna say yeah when you get a hole in one of that one hole don't you just throw beer on the thing my father-in-law showed me that one i was like i didn't even know it was a thing like what but yeah i mean i don't but yes people do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i don't yeah <laughs> but i understand you know and i've been to old trafford a few times so i think that's eighty thousand, eighty something i've been to the camp new in barcelona which is uh somewhere like ninety thousand plus wow italy uh the san siro in milan is like ninety thousand. so cool i mean it just yeah that gets pretty nuts that's pretty cool so i'm from kentucky but i went to the university of cincinnati have you been to either stadium I've seen Kentucky Stadium. I've not been to University of Kentucky Stadium. I have not been to Cincinnati Stadium. I've been to Ohio State Stadium. So, like, going through Ohio, mm. through Ohio State Stadium. Yeah. I've seen Toledo Stadium, the Rockets. Okay. I've been through there. Uh, I'm trying to think of another one off the top of my head. I think that's it for Ohio. But I've not seen Cincinnati Stadium. I mean, uh, Ohio State's way more impressive, so. Mm. Depends who you ask. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen Ohio State. I've seen the big house and like, you see them coming from like 16 miles away. You're like, my goodness gracious, these things are freaking like cathedrals for crying out loud for football. Like, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, have a much hatred for Ohio State because it's less so now, but it, they used to just be like, oh, they're the best ever. Like, so good. <laughs> like, everyone thinks they're so good. Like, and they would play like Miami, Ohio, 
and like places you've never heard of and yeah. win all their games and be like, look, we're undefeated. And it's like, well, but did you play anyone? So like, <laughs> I think they perpetuated this myth that they were good, which then got them good players because they faked being good. And now they're actually good. You know what I mean? Like, so I have a little bit of hatred from that. Like Alabama is just like, we're good anyway. Yeah. Like we have ha- always had good people. We will demolish you. Like Ohio State is like <laughs> it don't matter. Eh, we football sometimes. We're good. Everyone thinks we're good. <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> so still with this. I grew up a Michigan fan just because I like Michigan football. Like the way it was run. I played high school all stuff. So I grew up Michigan. So I didn't like Ohio State either. My really good friend's wife is Ohio State fan. So I might just share that clip you just said directly with her and just be like, there you go. Like Ohio State's just a bunch of fakers. They're not that good at football. <laughs> but now they are good. Like they're getting good recruits now because of the prestigious program. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, that's one way to do it, right? You fake it till you make it and then like works with anything. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Maybe that's what Cincinnati did because uh, I, we were horrible when I went there. We were all <laughs> basketball school and then we lost our coach and other things happened. And I don't know. I heard in the last few years they've been better. I don't really know anything about it. Yeah, they were really good. Yeah. Since they made college football, they made college football playoff last year. You're really good. Mm-hmm. Well, see, there you go. Then got immediately demolished. But then though. they played <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, we actually play football. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a difference in like, what they did was really impressive because they like actually, you know, all season long, they're showing like before and after pictures of Cincinnati players working out and stuff. And like they really beefed up and like did well, but they just were on a not on the same level as like, you know, the kind of people you're paying probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to play college football right now. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's true. I can remember going down to the University of Kentucky to hang out with some friends. And anytime the basketball players would like show up on the main drag to go to parties and stuff, they rolled up in, you know, a Range Rover and stuff. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, you're a college freshman. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Yep. Yeah, we know what's going on. And now with the money stuff, there's no hidden payments. They're just like, yeah, we're paid out in the open because of the change of college football. So now yeah. nobody cares, right? They're like, sweet, yeah, this booster paid me $20,000. Here's my dope car. Yeah. yeah. Nothing anybody can do about it because of the law change. So, yeah. Yeah. So if we're going to do that, why don't we just make the playoff longer now? Mm. Let's do it. Let's have lots more paid football. I said it. The perfect <laughs> system for college football is eight teams. Your, well, at this rate, all the conferences are going to merge together. But yeah. your Power Five conferences, get your championship winner, three at-larges. Done. There you go. There's your perfect imperfect system. Get your five teams in mm-hmm. from conference championship. Get three to get in. And guess what? If you don't win your conference championship game, you go into that three. Too bad. You didn't win. Yep. That's my thing with it. But it'll go to like 32 teams you watch because they want that money. So <laughs> oh yeah, it will just be a long process. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right back to Disney. More Disney money from ESPN. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why tournament champions are a farce and they're a separate title whatsoever. This is what I like about European football is you've got to grind it out for 38 games. Yeah. Play a Monday night in shitty weather and whatever else and collect your three points or not. Yeah. And... At the end of it, you were the best team. Yeah. I actually like the soccer system for that. Like the regular season matters. Like most times we talk about regular seasons and like not just football in general, like it doesn't matter. Like college football regular season does matter, but like some other sports like the NFL, you can afford to lose two games. Like, eh, we just didn't try it Sunday. Right. Right. You cannot do that in soccer. You can't. Like if you do, then you risk the chance of even winning anything. So that's why soccer system is perfect. It is. Yeah, you get nothing otherwise. And then, yeah, tournaments can be for something else, but you can't be like a mediocre team all season and then turn it on during these two weeks. Yeah. It's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. The way Tom Brady does. 
<laughs> yeah, he just gets by. He just gets by. Yeah. He's like 45. Yeah. Yeah, just let Tom Brady be an old man who thinks he's, he's just awesome. Like, I used to hate Tom Brady so much, but like at this rate, I'm just like, my gosh, like you're 45 and just sling the ball around, winning Super Bowls, whatever. Go do you, man. Yeah. yeah. Like, go do you. <laughs> I'm much more impressed and less annoyed at him now that it's like, I'm still good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Once you leave the Patriots system of being like, yeah, it's the system. And then you go win. It's like, okay, yeah, you're, you're actually really awesome. Never mind. Like, yeah, you're really good. Yeah. You've definitely shown something. That's true. I, I can agree with that in general, where like, if you are crushing it in a team built around you, okay, sure. Like good, but everybody's good. It's the team thing. If you can go somewhere else and just be, a multiplier and get it done. Well, now it's you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well. All right. Well, we're over time here. Was there anything we missed? Anything you would like to plug? Anything at all before we end here? My only last plug is if you are a developer that's listening to this, take the time to put accessibility as a priority. As much as everybody in the world is going to tell you that priority for accessibility is not there, something else on top of that, find time. I always send this message of 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day of accessibility helps you learn accessibility at a small rate, but it lets you figure out what things you want to learn that are relevant to you in your role. 10 minutes, literally less than 1% of your year from work. Take 10 minutes a day, build that up, build accessibility knowledge base, and it will make the world more accessible place. Some people disagree with me on that, but take it. Small chunks add up to big gains in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.